Well, good morning, Lakeside. It is uh, interesting to be connecting to you again in this way. Um, thought uh, take this opportunity, kind of halfway through the sabbatical, to um, maybe reach out, give you a bit of an update of where I'm at, and also just uh, bring this message this morning. And uh, it really has come out of some of my sabbatical thinking, uh, the topic and the text and uh, hopefully it'll apply not just to me but it will also apply to you and uh, the text for this morning uh, is Psalm 16 and the topic is how do we live as a follower of God and in the reality of God and this question has been on my mind a lot in the last month or so just as we are facing challenge after challenge culturally um, within the church outside the church there is a Christian response to things and how we are to live and how we are to be content and how we are to uh, walk closer to God and steadfastly with God. And uh, I'm going to talk more, I hope, in the fall about how we do respond to specific cultural things and the Christian response to the things and the pressures that are on us. Um, but this message almost serves as a preview. It almost serves as a setup of that. Because what we're talking about today in Psalm 16 isn't necessarily how we address this cultural issue or that cultural issue, but just how, as a follower of God, do I walk in the reality of God in a steadfast way, in an encouraging way, in a joyful way? And I have to ask myself that. How am I doing? Is my day-to-day -day relationship with God healthy? And what are the healthy habits of living under the reign and rule of God? And to answer that question, as we quite often can for the things closest to our human walk, uh, we can look to the Psalms, and especially to the Psalms in the life of King David. And Psalm 16 is very short, uh, but I think it's insightful nonetheless. Uh, David, as we know, King David enjoyed the special attention and the special favor of God, even as, at the same time, he struggled with his own temptations, he struggled with his own desires, not unlike ourselves. And certainly David also had a great number of his troubles brought on to him from outside influences, uh, not just by his own sin, like our own troubles are, but also bearing the weight of other sin, bearing the weight of having to lead the nation, do his job, uh, lead his people, uh, manage his often disruptive and deceitful and sometimes destructive uh, family, um, manage the palace. Uh, which was full of intrigue and politics and all these other challenges he faced because of the sin of people around him. Again, much like us, we face challenges within and challenges without. And yet, through all of that, David is a man who went steadily onward, steadfastly forward towards and with God. And in Psalm 16, we have a short summary of the type of life he determined to live and the blessings that resulted from that life. So what does it take to be that sort of a man or a woman? What marks the life of a person who stays the course with God and is able to rejoice in the way that David is able to rejoice? What is it they think? What is it they do? Very practically, very pragmatically, what do they believe? How do they carry themselves? How do they approach each day in order to have the faith that David had? And I need those answers myself, and maybe you do too, as you face the consequences of your own sin or the weariness of bearing up under the actions of others. And so we're going to look into Psalm 16 today, and uh, 
It will give us a glimpse into the mind and heart that David cultivated for himself that gave him perseverance and strength and steadfastness. Now there's eight points to this sermon, and so I'm not going to hurry, but I'm not going to go slow either. Uh, we will get through these eight points, and I think each of them speak in different ways into how we can uh, walk steadfastly with God. So Psalm 16, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the reading of God's word. And so as we look into the Psalms now, uh, we can break this down verse by verse and see the lessons that David teaches us about how to live in a steadfast way, steadily moving forward towards God, despite whatever is going on in the turmoil of our own lives, despite whatever is going on in our culture or the circumstances around us. The first thing that we see here in verses 1 and 2 is that David confesses to the Lord. It's a confession of our own weakness, of needing the preservation of God and seeking his refuge, confessing the right relationship of ourselves to God, because God is God and we are not. He is good and there is nothing good in us, and any good that we have comes from God. And to make any progress forward in our Christian walk with God, to even begin to take the first steps with God, this has to be our heart attitude. It expresses itself first and maybe most profoundly in the fact that we confess our sins to come to know God in our, our first coming to know Jesus and starting our life with him. Our, our initial repentance of our sin and turning to God because the root sin that we have to pull out of our heart is the ungodding of God and the God-making of ourselves. The root sin that we have as human beings is that we make ourselves God and put ourselves on the throne in our own lives. We believe we are strong, we believe we are wise, we believe we are self-sufficient. We don't need God, we don't need to listen to him. He is foolish and he is nothing but a crutch and a weakness. And in thinking that way, we resist God and we rebel against God and we refuse to acknowledge God as our creator. And instead, we wanna govern our own lives. And we believe ourselves to be good and ourselves to be righteous. Our morality will do just fine. And that's the essence of our sin that must first be confessed. And so before we make any progress forward in a life with God, that has to be confessed. We are weak, he is strong. We are not wise, he is wise. We are not righteous, he is righteous. We are not God, he is God. But it's more than just the starting place of a relationship with God, it really continues on day by day. This is David writing a lot later in his walk with God as a king. And after so much water has been under the bridge and he is still confessing that he is not good, God is good. He is not God, 
God is God. If we're going to progress in our walk with God, this heart attitude can't change. We have to stay in that moment, that reality of that confession. We are in a constant state of confession, of repentance, to that God is God and we are not. Because it's possible to repent and acknowledge God, but then over time to allow our hearts to take on that old attitude of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. Maybe a little bit of that was creeping into my own life and ministry. I have to guard against it as much as anybody else does. If I don't guard against it, I'm capable to start thinking of, I'm able to do this. I'm able to make the right decisions. I'm structuring things correctly. I'm casting the right vision. I'm hiring the right people. I'm preaching the right sermons. I'm pivoting correctly in the face of global pandemics. Now, it's not a prideful self-sufficiency. I'm not around going around arrogantly saying, I'm amazing at all of these things. It's more subtle than that. It's just more a matter of, this has been given to me to do and I have to do it. This is on me and I'm capable of it. I can do it in my own power. And as I start to think that way and stop confessing that God is God, then little by little, God decreases in my life. But if I confess that if any decision I make is right, if any counseling I do help, if any sermon lands on anybody with anything that's profitable, it's by God's sufficiency and not my own. Every time I lean further on my own strength, the more weary I become. And so, like David, we must all confess, I take refuge in you, I take refuge in your strength, not mine. I'm not good apart from you. I'm not anything good or wise. Nothing profitable comes from me except where you are in it, God. And so if we want to continue to walk forward in our Christian life with God, we have to be in the same state of confession that David is in that God is God and we are not. Secondly, David loves God's people. Verse three says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Here's the reality of walking with God forward in life and growing in God. People who love God, love God's people. People who grow and move forward with God and in relationship with God, they do so in community with more of God's people. It's a very difficult, I would say even a dishonest thing to say, I love Jesus, but I don't care much for Jesus' people. I love Christ, but I don't care that much for Christians. I love Jesus, but I don't love his bride, the church. If you love God, you love the people that God loves. King David loved the congregation. He loved the throng that went up with him to the temple to worship together. He says here, the saints, the believers, they are excellent people. They share David's love for God. They worship with him. They repent with him. They rejoice with him. They fill him with delight. And so if we're going to move forward, we have to love God's people. You can't make it very far as a Christian alone. To be a Christian is to be part of the church, to be part of the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 and in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. It's part of the temple of living stones, as Peter describes. All of Paul's letters speak to the unity and fellowship and mutual responsibility that believers have to one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up. And this is what David is speaking of here. He loves the excellent people of God. Jesus said that it's by our love for each other that the world would know that we are his disciples. So we're not going to do this alone. If you're stuck in your walk with God, if you do not feel like you're making very much headway in your relationship with him, perhaps it's because you're not delighting in his people. It's especially re relevant now, isn't it? As Ontario is opening up, where I am in the USA is starting to close down again. The Delta variant is a game changer. It's new data, it's a new threat, it's acting in new ways. 
So all I can say is stay the course, Ontario, in terms of dealing with this global pandemic. But even as we face pressures that try to keep us apart, we're all more keenly aware that if we give up entirely encouraging one another in our Christian life, we will stagnate. And so even as we are pushed apart, we must press in even all the more together, whether it's this way, by phone, by email, by Facebook, whatever it is, find a way to press in with the people of God. I can guarantee you there are people in our church who have largely disconnected from our fellowship in the last 18 months. I mean disconnected online as well. They're not watching the services, they're not coming to church, they've just fallen out of the habit. And I can tell you that if they, you sat down and asked them right now, point blank, face to face, cards on the table, do you think you're better off for it or are you struggling? They'll tell you they're struggling, that they miss it. Not only do they miss it, but they're feeling farther from God, farther from his people, farther from the fellowship of believers. And it's easy to drift. They miss what we all miss, the joy of close fellowship with the people of God. God calls them excellent people. God did not intend for you to live out your Christian life in isolation. The church was his idea and his plan. And those that do grow in their joy in God and in the blessings of God that we're about to see in later verses here are those that take full advantage of the church. Thirdly, and they get a little faster as I go along after this one, David rejects false gods in verse 4. He says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply, and their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So David lays out, not only does he confess his need for God's refuge and that only God is good, and he confesses his need for the benefit of being among God's people. Those are like positive things. I need those things. But then in the negative here, David states that he rejects the false idols and the counterfeit gods of the world. He is not going to participate in chasing after or worshiping false idols. David knows here what we should learn. We cannot hope to grow closer and steadfast in our walk with God while we're worshiping something in this world. That means when we take a created thing and elevate it above the Creator, that is idol-making. Our hearts, as Kelvin said, are idol factories. We manufacture little God competitors all the time, and we usually do need lots of little other gods, lots of little mini small g gods to try to make up for all the territory that God covers in our life and wants to cover. We need money for security. We need this person or that person to praise us or love us for our self-confidence. We need that form of entertainment or that drug or even that ice cream for our happiness. We need to lord it over someone else to have the authority we feel we should have. We need to gossip so that we feel accepted. And it goes on and on all week long, all month long. We get little dopamine hits from our little G pitiful gods that we think we need when in fact all of those things were meant to be fulfilled in God. God is love. He is acceptance. He gives us our appropriate authority. He is our security. He is in control. You might look after, back over the last few months and years and wonder, why have you not grown any closer to God? Why is God not a bigger part of your life? Why does he seem as distant or more distant than he did before? It's maybe because you have been running to other gods. You've been finding in other places those things you should be finding in God. It's not that we you know, shouldn't be praised by other people. We should be saying kind things and hearing kind things from people. It's not that we shouldn't be loved. It's not that we shouldn't exercise proper authority. All of those things are good. But if we take any of those things that are good and we elevate them above God, 
Before we take anything and we say, I must have this, or if God doesn't give it to me, then I will reject God. God, if you take my family, if you take this love out of my life, if you take this job away, if you take this, my good looks, if you take my health, if you take anything away from me, I'll reject you. What you've actually done is you've elevated that above God and said, God, you're just the vehicle to give me my real God. You're just the thing that I want to give me health or give me security and money or give me fame or give me the approval of other people. And if you take any of those things or you don't give them to me, then I'll have nothing to do with you. And in fact, if as I seek those things, I don't get them, then I'm discouraged. Now, again, I'll say, not all of those things are bad in and of themselves, but if you put them ahead of God, they become idols and they will destroy you. And I can ask that same question. My biggest danger actually is to make all of you my idols. That does not mean that I worship you, trust me. <laughs> what it means is, is that it's dangerous for me to begin to rely on the church and my ministry to provide for me what really should only come from God. I can start to depend on you for security and for affirmation and for love and for self-actualization and a sense of stability and control. And as I said, all of those things are good things. God wants us to have those things but we must receive them as the created, only as we understand them flowing ultimately from the creator. If I elevate my ministry, if I elevate you and your affirmation above God, two things are gonna happen, and it will happen with you in your idol making. You eventually will fail and disappoint me because you're rotten sinners just like I am. And secondly, I will crush you because you were never intended to bear the weight that only God can bear in my life. If I put all those hopes in God, he will not fail, and I will never crush him. So that's the danger of idol-making, of chasing after idols. What happens is they ultimately let us down and ruin us. And when we put God-like pressure on the idols in our life, we ultimately crush them. So don't elevate your children to be gods that need to satisfy you. You will crush your children. You will crush your spouse. You'll crush your career. You'll crush your church. You'll crush me. Nothing except God is meant to be God in your life. Only he will satisfy and you won't crush him. And David says, no, I'm not gonna chase after other gods. I'm not gonna fill up my weeks and my months with other things to satisfy me. I'm gonna trust only in what will not fail. I will trust in God. Fourthly, David, rests in God's sovereignty. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You hold the results of my life. We talk a lot about the sovereignty of God around Lakeside. We preach about it. We pray about it. We talk about it with each other. Uh, we recognize it at some level in every elders meeting I can remember. It's enshrined in the opening lines of Jesus's prayer to his disciples. He says, thy will be done. There's a good reason for all this sovereignty stuff throughout scripture. All of the things of Scripture speak to the completeness of God over all things. It's unmistakable that the sovereignty of God is present and unarguably clear in everything that is done in Scripture. All blessing, all disaster, all events, all history, all future is entirely in God's hand. I could go through literally a thousand verses that speak of the sovereignty of God. From Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Proverbs 16.4. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for the day of disaster. Uh, you could go to Jeremiah 15, where it talks about even destruction coming upon God's people by the will of God. Everything is under the sovereign will of God. And it's in God's sovereignty that we trust in Him and are meant to take comfort. Luke 12, 6-7 says, Are not five sparrows, sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. In Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. But even bad things under, are under the sovereignty of God. You will not make it far in your walk with God and steadfastness in your walk with God without coming to terms with the all-encompassing reality of God's full sovereignty and control over all things. I had several very practical lessons in this during the first month I was away. I read the wrong information from American Airlines and then it delayed our testing and it delayed our departing three days and then we missed a shuttle bus and the baggage check-in time by five minutes once we were in Texas so we couldn't leave and then our booking on the next flight was done incorrectly so it didn't reserve our seats and I had to return to the airport and physically walk through the booking process for a third flight which worked finally two days later and all the time that this was going on and I was so frustrated I was not a good example of being under the will of God's sovereignty Wendy just kept saying God knew this would happen there's a reason he's doing it and of course he was right every time I got stories to tell you which I won't get into now about the stuff that came out of that and David wasn't just delayed at an airport he was hunted for his life but David knew that God was still God and his lot in life was God's his past was God's his future was God's we cannot claim to trust in God on one hand and then fret over our present circumstances or our future fears on the other. If you are always wringing your hands about what is going to happen or not happen, if you're afraid of what's going on right now, or you're concerned about the future in a significant, despair-inducing, joy-robbing way, then you have not fully understood the sovereignty of God. If we're going to follow David's footsteps here to live a life with God, we have to come to grips with his sovereignty. When David was in the pit of his spiritual depression in Psalm 40, he remembered God is faithful. When he was torn up inside over the betrayal of a close friend in Psalm 70, he turned to God knowing that God had his future in his hands. God is sovereign and the steady, joyful, peaceful, maturing believer has taken that reality to heart and leans fully into it, rests in it, literally sleeps well at night knowing that God is sovereign over all things. Fifthly, David counts his blessings. And these last three will go quick. In verse 6, in this little illustration of how David lives his life, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Simple but effective. When you find yourself stuck in your walk with God, wondering why you're not going forward, not seeming to make any progress, probably struggling with why God has been absent or not giving you what you thought you should have, count your blessings. David does here, he says, the lines or the boundary lines of life have fallen in my favor in pleasant places. I have a beautiful future with what God has promised. David can look at his life and say, there is a lot that has gone my way. I have my health or my security or my peace in my nation. I have my family or maybe even the congregation, the church, the worship time with God. Whatever it is that David is counting here, David is counting his blessings. And notice he's counting his blessings in the midst or near the end of a life that was filled with tragedy and difficulty. 
Nobody moves forward with a God without acknowledging what God has granted to them and provided for them. We can pray for provision or hope to be sustained by God and wonder why he isn't answering in our time. All the time forgetting that God has provided and sustained and held us and not abandoned us right up until today. And why would he stop now? And even if this day is our last day, he has provided more than we can ask or imagine in the life to come. He has blessed. He has secured our future. All we need to do is look for and see the blessings of our God. Sixthly, David listens to the counsel of God. Verse 7 says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. God desires to give us wisdom. He desires to guide us. And David knows this and he blesses God for the wisdom and the guidance that he has given. Even as David has meditated on the word of God and dwelt on the law of God, even in the middle of the night, his heart full of God's word can give him instruction. He can lay there wide awake at night and receive the instruction from God because his heart and his conscience is conformed to the word of God. Brothers and sisters, if you want to make progress in your Christian walk, if you're wondering why you're not making progress in your Christian walk, it's because you are not as David has done dwelling on the counsel of God. If you want to make progress in your faith and move ahead in your relationship with God, then listen to his counsel, read his word. You're not meant to face the trials of your life or even the sin of your own flesh without God's wisdom and knowledge. So where is it in your life? How are you filling yourself with the wisdom and the counsel and the knowledge of God? It's in his scripture. God wrote the scriptures for you, for you to have transforming knowledge and wisdom if you seek it. David meditated in the law and the scriptures so he would have the wisdom of God. Seventh, David set the course of his life towards God. He says in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And this is really the centerpiece of the psalm to me. All the other things that David has talked about doing are really the result of him having done this. They all flow out of this reality of David's life. He set the Lord before him. And the best way I could come up with thinking of this is like a ship sailing on the ocean. If it's going to get where it wants to go, it needs to set a course and stick to it. And what a ship does is it picks out a star that does not move. And it sets its course upon that star. And it stays true to that star in its navigation. David navigates his life by the star of God. God is the focus of his attention. His eyes are always fixed there day by day. How in this day am I walking more closely and more directly towards God? God is the center of his affections, the focus of his life, and he will not be moved from that course. In order to set yourself on something, of course, you have to determine to do it. In order to determine to do it, it requires forethought, and this is what David has done. He's considered the things he could set his life on, and he's decided that God is the one that he will set his life on. And then he's done it. Do you think that way? Do you act as if God is the star that guides your life? Do you set your days and your weeks and your months on following God? Whether it's in your family or in your work, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you spend your recreation, how you raise your kids, how you're a husband, how you're a wife. Have you determined that it will be according to following God? Joshua challenged the people of Israel, saying, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. It's an act of will. Pick, pick what it is you're going to do. 
the whole world's out there for you to choose from. Whether it's the gods of your ancestors, served beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites, whatever, pick something to follow. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 15. The problem of a ship that set its destination is that it can begin to drift, and our lives can also begin to drift spiritually. And so we must constantly be like David, despite setbacks, despite circumstances, despite tragedy, despite his own sin, we determine to put the prow of our boat back on that unmoving star of God and move steadfastly forward with God. Put him always before you and resist drifting. And finally, David recognizes the resulting, the rewarding results. In verse 9, he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As he often does, David finishes the psalm describing the results of the course of action that he has taken. Therefore, because David has confessed God as God, because he takes delight in God's people, because he rejects placing hope in all other false idols, because he rests in God's sovereignty, because he counts his blessings, because he takes the counsel and wisdom of the Lord in Scripture, because he has set God before him as the focus of his life and affections, therefore his heart is glad, his whole being rejoices. He's not even afraid for his mortal flesh because he knows that God will not abandon him even after death. Is that what you want? Is you, do you want to move forward with God in such a way that you rejoice, that you are not afraid of any circumstance, that you know that you are always set with your heart towards God, to, to not even be afraid of death because God will take care of you. If you want that kind of life that David rejoices in here, David has told you in such a short psalm how to do it. We've just covered them all. You can go back over this psalm any day this week and read these seven things that result in the rejoicing that David says at the end. David knows that God has revealed to him the way to live his life. This is how you live your life as a follower of God, in God's presence, and it brings him joy now and he's promised eternal presence with God forever. So this, in a way, is, is the secret of David's life with God. This is how he kept moving steadily forward with God and receiving the blessings of gladness and joy despite all his sin, despite the terrible things that he did, despite the terrible things that were done to him, the horrible things that happened in his family. This is not about David having a great life because he followed God. This is about how David moved forward with God through those things in his life, resulting in gladness and joy and assurance and eternal security with God. And so if you're wondering where those things are in your life, there's the list for you. And it works just as well in reverse order. Set your life and affection on God. Listen to his counsel. He knows the path of your life. Count your blessings. Rest in his sovereignty. Reject false idols. Take delight in his people. Confess that you are not good and he is. That he is God and you are not. You can do it forwards or backwards. This is how David lived his life with God. God has incredible joy in store for you and for me. As I'm learning again 
He desires your heart to be glad. He wants you to know and be assured of your eternal pleasure in his presence. He's laid it all out for you. Determine today to set him before you and not drift away and see what happens. Read this Psalm 16 again and again and again and learn these simple one and two line lessons from David on how to live your life fulfilling steadfastly moving forward with God. God bless you guys. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray for my church family as I'm apart from them. Thank you for their prayers for me. I am not unaware of the blessing that I have here and with them and their generosity to this uh, this uh, time that I've taken. Father, just uh, pray that they find your word and your spirit profitable to them today. In Christ's name, amen.